Everything happens when all things come together and what can only be described as perfect chaos. Welcome back to the Perfect Chaos Podcast. It's Rhonda. And David. And we are excited to be back and have you on this journey with us. This week, we're going to talk a little bit about academic rigor. This is one of those highly debated hot-button issues that plagues education continuously. Both of us have heard colleagues that typically are pretty nice, pretty congenial with each other, get super agitated when they start discussing academic rigor. Since it's one of those topics that really gets people worked up on a normal basis, it seems extremely timely that we take a look at academic rigor and what that means while we are in this pandemic. Seems like a lot of the stuff we're talking about recently has uh, discussions and pandemic, and I don't know that we can go through many conversations without saying that. So uh, this is one of those topics that can be both uh, within that pandemic and uh, just in general. But uh, now that we're really investing in a lot of different uh, avenues as far as making sure our programs are better during these times, uh, what better time to... uh, have this conversation. So a lot of stuff going on this week. Uh, for those of you all that have been keeping up with us the last couple of weeks, we've been uh, going through some redevelopment within our podcast studios. We've been kind of going through that. This is uh, being episode three. This has uh, been a couple month journey now. So uh, hopefully all of our stuff is getting better or we could say that our rigor in the podcast world is getting better. But uh, we're going to go ahead and, and start this off and see where we can get uh, over the next little bit. So what is the official definition of rigor? Well, amazingly enough, that kind of depends. Uh, so, you know, to pull an, an official definition, I went on good old m-w.com. Uh, thank goodness for Merriam-Webster. Um, and rigor itself has basically five definitions. Um, one of them would come from my criminal justice world when I taught that of rigor mortis, but we're not going to go there. Um, let's see, we've got one here that's harsh inflexibility in opinion, temper, or judgment. Uh, so it's kind of synonymous with severity. We've got the quality of being unyielding or inflexible, synonymous with strictness. Um, an act or instance of strictness, severity, or cruelty, <laughs> which depending on what academic rigor looks like in your classroom, that may be the one that your students are going to go with. Um, we've got a tremor caused by a chill, strict precision, and probably the one that seems to fit academics the best, in my personal opinion, a condition that makes life difficult challenging or uncomfortable and i don't think we're necessarily going for difficult and uncomfortable but i think definitely challenging is what where all of us are trying to head when we're thinking about the rigor in our courses well one of the definitions that i pulled up and it's uh from the uh, website edglossary.org it just says the term rigor is widely used by educators to describe instruction schoolwork, learning experiences and educational expectations that are academically intellectually and personally challenging and then they tossed one out here, uh, which was uh, kind of interesting because it's probably 
probably uh, in my realm, uh, one of the things that they're talking about, uh, altering just a little bit, it says, for example, fill in the blank worksheet or multiple choice test would not be considered rigorous by many educators. So just, just one example uh, there outside. So what are our definitions of rigor? I think my definition of rigor is I want my class to be challenging. I don't want it to be the easy A. Uh, we all know of classes that we have taken or we have heard of or we have wished we had taken, perhaps. Uh, maybe <laughs> a few times there were times I'd wished I had perhaps taken that easy A class. But I want my class to be challenging. But more than that, I want my students to be thinking critically about things and not just be surface level. And that's so very similar to mine as well. Uh, and what you said there at the very end is kind of uh, where I stay focused is um, a lot of people have that, especially uh, in, in our realms of academics, where there is some sort of licensing or certification requirements. Everybody says, I want to pass the test. And passing the test is one thing, and that's one level of rigor, we could say. Uh, but uh, the real rigor goes into how does that translate once they get done. Uh, so working in the field on patients for me or uh, in the realm of academics teaching uh, K-12 in, in your realm, how do they do that? And so uh, the answer is, hey, I need to know how to pass this test versus I need to know how to do the job. And by doing that, you translate back to being should be able to pass a test. And so how do we make sure that we stay in that critical thinking realm uh, on, on how to manage a, a complex, uh, ever-changing environment to kind of a static certification or licensure exam? Yeah, because, um, and I know your licensure exams are a little bit different um, than ours. We have now, in this state, moved to something that's not just an exam, but uh, in general... In the past, the licensing exams for education have been mostly multiple choice tests. Uh, and I know a ton of people that can pass a multiple choice test, but that doesn't make them a good teacher. So um, I think that's important to remember as we're thinking through what this looks like uh, and what academic rigor in our classes looks like. Because I'm one of those people... <laughs> Everybody laughs. When I lesson plan, I do backwards lesson planning. I always look at where I'm trying to end up. That's where I start. So in my mind, that's the same thing when we're talking about rigor. Where What am I wanting them to get out of it? In one of my classes, we cover a ton of topics, and we just go, uh, the joke is that we go a mile wide, but we just go an inch deep on every one of those topics. Does that mean that they're not rigorous? Yeah, no, I still want you to think, even if we're just doing little tidbits of it well and in the classroom that may be what we need to do and set the expectations for that day hey look i need to show you 10 different ways that you can assess this but due to our time constraints we only have a you know five minutes to go over each one of these uh, and that takes up that hour that we have and, oh, you have to go home and 
go the next 10 minutes on each of those, you know, and, and I, I say 10 minutes, you know, whatever that actually is. So, and, and ours is actually a little bit different now. And it's actually going to be interesting this coming uh, uh, fall graduating class. <clears throat> I shouldn't say upcoming. The current uh, uh, classes in progress, they're actually changing ours from a multiple choice, single answer exam to um, potentially multiple, multiple choice answers. Um, adding graphics and making it a little bit more complex, something more than just that ABCD time-based or, or question-based answer. So let's get into uh, rigor just a little bit more then. So what are the items that make up rigor? We, we've kind of alluded to some of them with testing and, and different stuff, but what are some of the items that make up rigor? Um, in my mind, at least, that can be partially dependent on what you're teaching. Um, I think a lot of it is critical thinking. Are we asking the students to think or are we asking them to uh, spew back at us what we lectured them on? You know, that learning by rote that we did a lot when we were kids. Um, and I'm not picking on anybody, but that's there's not a whole lot of thought process that goes into memorizing your multiplication tables, right? That was just something we did. Um, so in some cases, I think it's going to be thinking critically about the actual topic. In some cases, it may be, how does this topic apply to, be, to what I want to do? Um, you know, when I was, when I taught criminal justice, I had every kind of student you could imagine in those classes, and they had career aspirations of being everything from a probation parole officer up to, I had some that wanted to be judges. Um, had some that wanted to go into the military. You know, the we kind of ran the gamut on that. So a lot of times, although the actual topic that I was teaching that day may be more of a procedural thing, um, the rigor and the critical thinking came in with how does this apply and what you want to do. So, and I think that's also one of those pieces to keep in mind. Um, you know, in my classes, it it's tons of discussion. In my classes, it's tons of, okay, we've talked about a concept. Now, what does it look like? You know, now I teach education classes. So what does it look like in your classroom, in your future classroom? What do you think this is going to be? How do your experiences growing up, going through school, fit or not fit this particular concept. So you, you said multiple things there. Some of them just say that uh, root uh, level memorization up to uh, some of the different aspects, looking at the critical thinking and such. And <clears throat> so this to me applies back to just simple Bloom's taxonomy. Where are we at? Are we just asking them to bring back that definition? Uh, what is a dam? How is it built? What does it do? Right. Or are we saying, hey, what does this, what does putting a dam in this area actually do? Uh, the ecosystems that it builds, the uh, power that it generates, the, um, the protection from flooding, the, you know, how does the dam system work? And, you know, so going into that, now not, not only are we just spitting out a, a term, but we're able to take those concepts. So this would be taking those um, 
objectives at the beginning of a class, uh, a lesson plan for the day, or going back to a uh, individual uh, uh, class or course within a program, and then what are the programmatic goals? And saying, hey, are we just looking at that and saying, hey, we're just going to evaluate this by a simple definition-based or root uh, memorization, or are we going to go into the deeper levels? And so with that, you know, obviously the, the easy answer is if we hit those low order thinkings, uh, the bottom of the triangle of Bloom's taxonomy, the wider the birth of more students and, and again, those easier classes, or do we start to take that into the understanding and the applying and the uh, analyzing, which now we become a harder teacher um, and somebody else that's not doing it, you have two, you know, who's the student going to pick? And obviously we, we should want to aspire to that higher level, but how do we get there? I'm okay with being the hard teacher. Cause you can be the, the hard teacher and still be the fun teacher. Um, just depends on how you do it. Um, and I think a lot of it goes down to what are we trying to get out of our students? Where are we leading them? Is that what you were asking? That might have been what you were asking. That's where we're getting to, yeah. <laughs> it's a short segue into that, but yes. Uh, so what are we looking to to get from our students? Why, why does rigor really matter? Because you can't learn without it. If we never challenge ourselves, if there's never a challenge, then what do we ever learn? So in that, some can say, hey, I, I can learn. Right. I know about it. Yeah. But do you, if you weren't challenged to get there, it was a challenge to learn to walk. That was rigorous. Right. It, it's hard. It would be in my mind, you would have a hard time convincing me learning has happened without any challenge being there. Well, what I'm going to say and where I was going is, is I can learn about it, whether I can learn to do it. Right. Or not. And that's that's one of those things is a lot of times we can we can Google something. We can learn about finance uh, and not not personally write a check to the the electric company. But, I, you know, we, we can learn about stocks and stuff like that. But you can pick on the, me because I don't the, know how to balance the checkbook now. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but but then, you know, we, t we take a look at those stock traders that they see a little blip. And to them, what, what looks to us as a little blip on a on a graph to them automatically pulls up sheets worth of data in their head. And that, that little blip means in the next 12 hours, this is going to happen. And we need to move this, 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 and this. We need to advise our clients of that, 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 and that. So I know about finance. I know about those stocks. But right. I, but there I was still a blip. challenge for you to learn those things. It, it, it is. I don't know that I necessarily equate rigor with then knowing, you knowing how to do it. Okay. Because I think, you know, and I mentioned the memorizing your times tables earlier, you know, for us, we look back and that was just what we did. Right. Uh, but if you, both of our kids, as they were going through learning their times tables, it was horrible. It was a challenge for them. That's an easy thing. And we got two smart kids and it was still a huge challenge for both of them. Um, so I think in my mind, Rigor is how they learn. Um, I've always told my students, every class I've ever taught, 
uh, whether it was criminal justice or education. I've told them all, I don't care if you agree with me or not. I don't want you to necessarily agree with me. Sometimes I'm going to say things that I really want you to disagree with. I just want you to come back at me with why you disagree with it, with something other than, well, because my daddy said. And I guess that's when I talk about having challenging courses. I'm wanting to think beyond, I want my students to think beyond, well, this is the way we've always done it, or this is the way I've always seen it. So that actually brings up a, a, a quote that I have here. Uh, it's actually from the website teachhub.com, and it says, Rigor in the academic sense is referring to that fine line between challenging and frustrating a student. It means that the students are challenged to think, perform, and grow to a level that they were not at previous. So again, that kind of to me, that kind of goes where I was going before. It's like, hey, I'm comfortable just knowing this, but how yeah. am I performing? And uh, my thoughts on, on this as far as like my, my profession, it would be the, do we just teach that this is the body system A and disease process A and we issue treatment A and you get outcome A? Or do we say, okay, this is the body system. These are the disease processes. And these are our typically standard treatments and we should, in a perfect world, see outcome A. But if you have outcome B occur, this is why. If you have outcome C occur, this is why. If you have adverse action A occur, this is why. And this is how you go about fixing that to keep it from being worse. In the academic setting, it would be finding that individual that is passionate about something but don't know that they're passionate about it building that desire within to read that one additional book that they're not wanting to read because they don't have time or they're busy. And then all of a sudden that one book brings out their desire and love for that. And they are able to go to the next level. I can go with you on that. Does the concept of academic rigor change depending on the age of the student and the type of course? I don't know that the concept changes. I think that the definition, especially that last one you read, um, where's that from? Teacher Hub? Teacherhub.com. Um, that one to me, like, is a pretty standard definition that can go kind of across the board. Now, I think how we achieve that changes depending on student level. I think part of that is when we talk about differentiating instruction, you know, meeting our students where they are, those kinds of things. You know, does rigor look the same in kindergarten as it looks in eighth grade? No. Does it look the same as eighth grade as it does as a senior in high school? No. Does a senior in high school, does rigor for them look the same as it does a freshman in college? Shouldn't. <laughs> so this would be one where if we were looking at it plotted on a graph, it's not kind of a, a steady increase. If we were to adjust that, it's basically a straight line. Yeah. For, for that kindergarten level, that rigor is at this specific level. And then I move that up, to, uh, adjust for that age group. And it, so that difficulty is there, that challenge is there. Well, and I uh, think but it's, it's how we get there is a little bit different. I think it's an ever increasing. I mean, you can't, what you're doing at the beginning of the year with a kindergartner, hopefully is going to look different at the end of the year. Um, this past year, we're just wiping that one. <laughs> I'm not counting last year. Um, but in general... You know, 
when they're coming into kindergarten and you're teaching them their letters and how to write their name. And by the end of kindergarten, we're doing addition, a little bit of subtraction. You know, it, it gets much more in depth. So as far as that part goes, it's not that they're necessarily staying at the same level. Um, I just don't, I think it just adjusts. I don't know. That may not make any sense what I just said. But. What do you think? So uh, I, I do, I do agree. And I also think that this, uh, while it's a, a static line, as far as that difficulty, as far as that uh, level of rigor, uh, I think within a singular grade year that changes as well. Right. Um, because as you come into an eighth grade year, uh, your first days, you're a seventh grader that has moved forward on a calendar. Right. Uh, and then you you develop into that eighth grade. Uh, and same thing with uh, kind of the study habits. Uh, you know, those that have graduated high school uh, are, are done with high school. They're graduated. Uh, they've met these standards and now they're going on college. But those study habits, they're the same. So when you get somebody in that 13th year, the freshman year of college, now you still have a high school senior. And so on day one versus uh, week 15 of that first semester, that that rigor maintains uh, and, and how you drive or, or, or uh, again, in that definition, it was the challenge versus frustrating the students um, is day one is a little bit different on how you present that versus, again, that 15th week. Well, and I think uh, trying to stay on that line between challenge and frustration that's a daily battle you know rigor looks very different depending on the day in my class um a couple semesters ago my class came in to do their midterm um people that know me know that i'm not a huge testing person um when i do give tests they're all lots of short answers lots of scenarios that kind of thing uh but they came in to take their midterm and they were terrified and so we did a little review and they were still terrified. They couldn't even answer the review questions. I ended up giving them their midterm and telling them to take it home. Take it home, do it. Because it was more important to me that they really understood it than that they could perform on that test in that room. So I think, you know, sometimes when we're thinking about rigor, that's got to play into account too. I know for us, I shouldn't say for us, for me, Right now, um, we're, our freshmen aren't really 13th grade. They're really about 11 and a half because they got about half of that senior year in high school. So um, they're a junior and a half, basically. And, and that has transformed what the classroom looks like. They're also, and I, I think we've talked about this, in some of our earlier podcasts, just this emotional toll that everything is taking on students. Uh, we have to keep that in mind when we're talking about rigor, uh, because something that typically would just be challenging currently can move real quickly into frustrating just because of outside circumstances. Well, I want to take back to something you mentioned uh, just a minute ago as well. Uh, because I find uh, this very interesting. I've had this conversation quite a bit. Uh, but one of the things that you mentioned was you gave a test and told them to take it home. Mm -hmm. um, and my question is this, is 
Can an open book exam, whether in the classroom or sitting at home, maintain that academic rigor as well? And mine, before I turn that question over to you, is yes. Taking a look both in, in my fire and emergency services background, even emergency management, uh, one of the things that we'll find, and especially in the hazmat realm, is you never go off your own understanding. The first thing you do is look for the information about what's going on, step back, do, a re do research first, and then go forward uh, to whatever we need to do. So that in itself is a real life example of an open book exam. Right. And not only that, but we've administered open book exams before in the classroom and typically they have worse results. They do. Because open book exams they, are way harder. Because they have it in their head and they, as soon as they know that they have that book, they start searching for that answer. And then they usually let something uh, change that response in their head. So, so can, can take home exams be rigorous? Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I say that, I say that really quickly. Um, yeah, I think they can. Um, I think how that happens is going to look different in every subject, in every class. You know, I mean, I teach education classes and what it's going to look like in my ed tech classes versus my foundations of edu education classes are, it's very different. Um, they don't look the same. The one thing that does kind of carry over on that is I do a lot of for my students that are not teachers yet, that they're working, they're, they're teacher candidates working towards that license, I do a lot of explain the concept. Now tell me what that concept looks like in your classroom. Because here's the thing. If A, if they're going to cheat, they're going to cheat. I mean, I, I kind of, I used to worry a whole lot about that. A whole lot. And then I got to the point that you know what? They're hurting themselves. They're the ones that have to pass the licensure exams. They're the ones that have to pass my class. I, I can't make it not happen. Now, does that mean that I encourage it? No. I tell them not to cheat. Um, but we also talk about how that is a sign of respect. It's a respect for yourself and it's a respect for your profession that you're going into. Um, so I kind of approach that differently. But while you can cheat on what, you know, what is a jigsaw method, you can look that up. But then when I tell you, okay, now tell me how you could use jigsaw method in your classroom, that's a little harder to cheat on. Because the answer is not always the same. What it would look like in your class versus my class is very different. Much less if we start talking, you know, our P12 teachers that, you know, what's it going to look like in kindergarten versus what's it going to look like in PE or seventh grade social studies? Or, you know, it's just a different world. And to me, that's how you can kind of maintain that rigor is start asking those questions. How does this apply? How would it look in your world? And this is where, as people in academics, understanding what is in a uh, evaluation tool is going to be uh, paramount. Right. It's not just, you know, it's one of those things that we can put a, a test together. We have 20 questions and we're doing a quiz. And so we put 20 questions out there and we're running late. So we just try, toss 20 questions together. Um, whereas if we plan that, we know that 
um, each question has a cut score. And we know that uh, that cut score, 100% of entry-level educators or 100% of entry-level uh, mercy services professionals should get that right, or 90, or 80, or 70. And so we can adjust our rigor in those exams by adding, like you said, some of the short answer stuff, how apply this, you know, something more than just giving me a definition or a, right. a B, C, or D. Um, that's a little bit harder for us um, because it takes time. It does take time. It takes time to make it and it takes time to grade it. Right. Um, and you know, I'm a big thing. I have a big thing. I don't assign it unless I'm going to grade it. I refuse to give like participation check marks. Oh, look, you've, you answered a question and not read it and actually give them good feedback. So, and this is where discussions on uh, online uh, uh, courses have to be more than that. So did somebody just come into a discussion board and say, you know, you, you've told them that they need to respond uh, to two different people and they, Hey, I like your answer. Thanks a lot. And oh, you got your five points for that. Or you say, hey, you need to give them a counter argument to what they're dealing with and, and get in there. Now you have to get into the grading of a response to a response with a potential response. Right. Well, and you know, there's a ton of research, and not that we're going to get into it on this one, but uh, there's a ton of research about the whole, you know, write your discussion post and, and respond to two of your classmates. And what a horrible idea that is. And that it's not really getting what the goal is. Because for most of us, when we do that, the goal is to get them to engage with each other in the online format and how it's not really creating any engagement. It's just because we're simply getting the, I agree or I disagree, and then they move on. So there's that. Um and I think, you know, thinking through the online realm, and I know we've got this question kind of coming up, so I don't want to go too far, but I do think it's very interesting that neither one of us, as we've sat here and talked, have talked about a number of assignments. Because I'll get there when we get there. I'll <laughs> say it when we get there. Never mind. All right. Um, so, uh, getting there uh, <laughs> a, a little bit, uh, we're, we're going to talk now about what we've kind of been dealing with in the academic year 1920 and going into 2020, 2021. Um, we are not in the same environment right now that we were this time last this, year. This time last year. <laughs> And hopefully, uh, we're not where we'll be this time next year. Oh, uh, if, man, I if hope everything not. Been, you know, been on a lot of calls here lately, and that's, you know, they use the term new normal and, and despise that. But, you know, one of the things is in March of 2020, academic institutions all across the country in the United States um, found themselves in a different environment than where they were the week before. Right. And it, um, it became crisis teaching. Like, let's just go on and... You know, I remember when it happened and everybody was like, oh, now you know what homeschooling's like. Yeah, no, y'all. This was crisis teaching. Nobody was prepped for it. It was, here's, I think you all got like a week to get your classes online. We got two days. I mean, you know, it just depended on where you were. 
um, our public schools around here said two days. Then they said, oh, wait, it's going to take another two days. And, you know, because there were so many other things. And we've kind of talked about some of those as we've gone along. But so one of the things, and this was a constant from my students during the spring after we went online, uh, that I would hear because when we would do classes, I always, you know, I would stay on because I use Zoom. And I would stay on the Zoom and, you know, kind of do a check-in. How are you feeling? You know, we've done the class part. Now, how are you personally doing? How are things going? Everybody feeling okay? You know, we had a lot of people around here losing jobs in March. Stuff like that happening. Um, And overwhelmingly, I kept hearing, I have so much more to do. Everybody's giving me so much more to do. Our daughter came home from high school and had one teacher that loaded them. Do you remember that? She came in just crying because she had, what, 30 assignments due in a week? You know, I have so much more to do. Now, my challenge to that, for some of it, I don't know that it was more to do than what we would typically have done in the classroom. I think it was just that we weren't doing it in class anymore. So some of those discussions that we would have typically had in class, I think a lot of people just put them in online. So it does look like a ton more. Um, so I'm not saying, I'm not saying everybody just loaded everybody up, but I think there is something to be considered when we're talking about rigor Does the amount of rigor in your course, is that dependent upon the number of assignments you give? I think the answer to that should be no. Well, I'm glad we're in Uh, agreement. Otherwise, they'd have to listen to us fight on the podcast. Theoretically, (laughs) you could give one assignment and it kind of be a culminating project that spans your class period, uh, the, the time that you're with that individual and you can assess And that's what everything. a dissertation is. Right. <laughs> and that's, I think most people would agree, that's about as rigorous as it gets. And, but again, when you don't sit down and say, hey, this is what my tests are designed to evaluate. This is the level that those tests are designed to evaluate for. The answer is, in the absence of that information, we use... A bunch of information and so instead of one quality assignment whether that be a multiple choice test because even multiple choice tests can give us the rigor right. that we're looking for they've got their place but it may be that uh, instead of just one multiple choice test be, that we spend an hour to two hours or or amount of time designing and making sure that's assessing everything properly what we do is give them 10 different things that end up taking a lot more time. Right. Well, and I think there is something to be said, you know, and I was guilty of it. I mean, so last spring I took on a new class right before the semester started. We got it myself and another professor. We ended up, each taking a section of a brand new class or it was a class that had been taught, but it had to be redone totally. Um, 
So we rebuilt it in like three days, which is all fine and good. And we came up with some great assessments. But as we went home and we were teaching online, and part of this, I would like to think that I would have realized anyway. I would like to think that if I was seeing these kids face to face every day, I still would have realized that we had some things that were just, you know, we were doing seven technology integrated lesson plans when three would suffice and get us to where we needed to be. Um, you know, I don't know if I realized that, like I said, I'd like to think that I realized it and would have realized that if we were face to face, um, but I think a lot of it came from talking to my students and realizing as I was grading those lesson plans, you know, they did a little bit of technology integration on the first one, a little bit more on the second one. They were doing pretty good by the third one, but then it got stagnant and they just kind of stayed. They didn't do anything more or anything new after that third one. Uh, so when I built the class for this fall, I cut it from seven to three and then spread my three out. Uh, you know, kind of with some different expectations. Um, so I think in my mind, you know, I tried to get it down to one assignment a week for my online classes. And that's kind of a standard, you know, one meaningful assignment in a week. Um, I'm not gonna say that's all they ever do. A lot of times I will have some discussion posts up just to try to get them talking and rolling um, and interacting with each other. I have found that a lot of times when I do those, I'll have them do little videos on their discussion posts instead of just typing it. That seems to do a little more. Flipgrid's great for that. Um, but I, I really challenge this notion that we build rigor into our courses by giving more assignments. I don't think that's how we do it. And I don't think we can do it that way in emergent situations. And we're talking about the pandemic, but let's be honest. We got a ton of emergent situations that can happen. You know, we are pretty well landlocked. So we're not, if we have a hurricane, we got a whole other kind of problem besides academic rigor going on. But, you know, those, the, the regions and the areas that they do get those hurricanes, how can you know, how can we make some changes and account for that um, and still maintain quality education that's challenging to our students? And we can also take this uh, opportunity to, to, to look at the last two podcasts and some of the stuff that we talked about that uh, rigor and what it does to our students may be different per individual. Uh, there may be some individuals that have got uh, a great setup at the house and they have access to the resources that they need at all times. And so that they do have the opportunity to go back, but then there are others that have full-time jobs, right? They may have uh, four or five other siblings uh, at the house and they have access to limited bandwidth. And so now those 10 assignments, instead of, uh, giving the rigor they need, they're just trying to rush through them to uh, let the next sibling get on the computer or they're doing it on their lunch break 
and instead of going to get food, or they may not have food if you know if uh, their resources are scarce. Right. Uh, they're they're using those opportunities to uh, to do those assignments, and we're not getting that quality. We're not getting the rigor. We're getting a product that is complete. Right. But has learning really occurred? So um, so we do have to take that um, the mental health aspect um, and just the overall well being of that individual into account when we're doing this. We need those outcomes. We need to know that when we release them and they go and take their required exams that they're ready to go teach uh the the p12 they're ready to go out and work on uh the street and help patients uh they're they're knowledgeable they're capable but we also need to make sure that at the end of our program the first thing they don't want to do is just give up the profession because they're already burnt out right well and i think there's something to be said you know, A, we don't always know those situations or we think we know them and then we just get totally shocked. But I think there's also something to be said about how we grade and give feedback. So one of the discussions that I've had recently at work surrounding rigor and number of assessments and, you know, what are we doing and Uh, And I kind of alluded to it earlier in this podcast. I don't give anything that I don't grade. Nothing that I do is a, oh, you did it, so you get a check mark. Uh, You get points just for completion. I don't do that. And one of the things that I have found is because my students know that I don't give them busy work, um, and and they know that pretty well. I, I tell them that I'm real upfront about it on the front end. Um, I tend to get a little bit better engagement in the assignments because they realize that I'm not just giving them an assignment to give them an assignment to say that we've done it right. So that we have a, a big long list of assignments at the end of the semester. Um, so I, I really, truly, at least in my, uh, personal experience, feel like maybe if we can cut down on numbers of assignments and make sure that the assignments, the assessments that we're using are truly worthwhile, that also will help build the rigor of the course because the students will take more stock in it, take more ownership in it because they realize that it's not, you know, I think back to, when we, I mean, I say we, we didn't go to the same elementary school, but when I was in elementary and middle school and there would be a sub for two or three days. And so you get a packet of dittos, what we called then dittos, copied sheets, whatever, and a note on the board that one of these sheets will be a quiz grade. And there might be 15 sheets in there, right? And we've seen that with our own kids. They come home with these packets because it's a sub day and they don't want to do it. And we don't want to sit there and work with them on it. You know, so how much is actually being accomplished by having all that there? So that goes into, um, you know, what does it take to define that, a that an individual is competent? Um, and that's one of those things that, that we take a look at. Is it, a number of hours being completed. You have 
student teachers that are going out. I have individuals that are working on ambulances and, and we have times that they're supposed to be out there. But if they have a good work ethic uh, and they're hitting everything in the classroom, um, then they have the ability to prove competence without ever going in the field. Or they, I shouldn't say prove, they have the ability to be competent without ever going out in the field. That's one of the things that we're seeing with uh, this this pandemic is that the, we lost a lot of uh, those sites. And right. so how do we determine competence? Well, I know you and I had this conversation, this competency-based um, assessment versus like numbers of you have to have this many And I think we were talking about IV sticks for your students when we talked about it back in April, maybe, March or April. I feel like we had this conversation. But, you know, there is something to be said. You know, do we have to say, okay, there's a minimum number of student teaching hours required? Yeah, we do. Because for us, at least, we need to see you in multiple situations. You know, our student teaching is a semester. They have two different placements. Um, we need to see them in different situations, get them exposed to different situations, uh, different schools, different ways of doing things, you know, but they've had practicums all through their academic career, through their college career. So there is something to be said for that. Um, and I think that kind of takes us into this. What do we take out of this? What do we take? Cause we've all had to make changes for this pandemic. Um, And I will even be the, I guess, maybe the ugly one to say, if you didn't make a change to your class due to the pandemic, you really need to rethink what you're doing. I don't know how anybody could have just kept on rolling and not made any change whatsoever, even to an online class. This has affected everybody. So what do we take out of it? So one, I say we take out of it the fact that everything we need to do comes out of that we've always done it and determine is it doing what we needed to do is the lesson that we're giving um what we need it to give is our assessment assessing what it needs to assess uh and therefore every second uh, that we're in the classroom or that we're assessing or that we send them back with you know in the old days every every hour you were in a classroom you were supposed to study three hours at home and uh so those are difficult now because our students are working, they're doing all this different stuff. And, and so we need to make sure as academic uh, professionals, uh, as educators, that we're making sure that every minute is tied to them. Uh, we go back to the, uh, they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Right. And that is being prepared for uh, all things going on that day. Well, and I think that kind of goes into that when we were talking earlier about what does rigor look like in your classroom and where does it change and what changes need to be made, all that ties back into knowing not only your content, but also your students, you know, and the other thing, and this is something, you know, it's funny. I saw it when I talked at the community college level somewhat. Um, I didn't see it quite as much when I taught, public school when I taught high school um and then I see it a lot at the university level is that maybe sometimes we forget that 
they're not just taking our class. They've got other classes. They have other responsibilities too. And so part, when I look at making my assessments rigorous and trying to make sure that, you know, my assessment really matches what I'm wanting to get out and what I'm wanting them to learn, part of that is to take into account, you know, yeah, I really want them to write a paper, but does it really need to be a 12-page paper? Or can I get what I need? Can they, are they better served by me saying, hey, no more than six pages? Because how much of that 12 becomes just rambling to hit, to hit a page count? So. so as we've gone through this, we've talked a lot about what rigor is, how do we attain rigor, uh, and then kind of how the academic uh, world impacted by adverse effects. Uh, you know, we've talked a lot about pandemics, uh, but ultimately our overall goal is to make sure that we have a student uh, that is ready to graduate, that is competent. Uh, you know, obviously uh, every program has the, we're going to meet the minimum standards, but we all want to go a little bit above that. So uh, that is academic rigor and, and redefining what that rigor may mean in the midst of a pandemic. So I believe you have uh, recommendations for this week. So I do. I have a couple of tips this week. Um, and this is really kind of going out to our people that are trying to teach and they've got students face-to-face and virtual and they're teaching them all at the same time. Okay. Um, so this is just a couple of tips that I have discovered as we've been rolling this semester. Cause that's, that's how I t- I'm having to teach is I've got some in class, some virtual and some that are kind of going back and forth. So I've got two tips. My first one to increase engagement is to invest in an omnidirectional microphone that you can plug into the computer in the classroom or into your tablet that you can set that microphone in the middle of the classroom. And that way the people that are virtual can hear the discussions that are going on amongst their classmates. So I do a ton of what do you think about this? How does this look in your classroom? And what I discovered was the people that were on the virtual side could not hear anything their classmates were saying. So I spent about a week and a half repeating everything that was said which is horrible. (laughs) Uh, Just throwing that one out. It's really bad when it's a three hour class and you have to repeat every word that's said to everybody. Um, So I ordered, I mean, and I ordered a, it's a blue snowball mic Um, has worked out really well for me. I'm not saying that's the best one there is, but it was not super expensive and it was available on Amazon quickly. So that's what we ordered. Um, And since doing that, the amount of discussion and engagement between my virtual students and my face-to-face students has grown by leaps and bounds because I'm no longer the mediator. Um, So that's the first one. My other one is, if possible, if you have the option, use two webcams when you do this. Um, If you can use two, One should be between the teacher and the face-to-face students so that when the teacher's looking out at the face-to-face students, that teacher is also looking into the webcam so that the students virtually can see your face. Um, 
I made that mistake the first, I guess, about week that I was teaching. One of the rooms that I'm teaching in, it's actually, I teach from a doorway in between two rooms. So the computer was off to my left. So everybody that was on virtual, all they were seeing was my left profile um, from far away because the computer was like across the room. So uh, think through that. If you can get the webcam in between your face and your students that are face to face, then it also seems like you're looking to your virtual students as well, uh, which is huge. That second webcam, if you can use to face it towards the classroom so that your virtual students can see the other students. <laughs> uh, that helps. That does a ton. Uh, just being able to see each other has been huge. If you can only use one, um, if it's a webcam that you're just, it's like a plug and play, plug it in. And then if, if you're doing a whole lot of lecture, have it facing towards you. But if you get to a part that it's a lot of discussion, flip that bad boy around and let it face the, the room and let them see who's talking. Uh, that can be huge. And this also goes into, you're mentioning webcams, but if you have a tablet device, you can utilize that. I mean, when you're talking yeah. about Zoom uh, or some of the other platforms, we talk about the Google Class and uh, others, you can add, uh, you know, almost unrestricted number of people into that. Yeah, so mine. So add a, add a tablet or something like that. I log into so. Zoom on the main computer and then I take my iPad and I put my iPad in front of me and that's how they can see me. So that's working out real well. All right, everybody. This was episode three of the Perfect Chaos podcast. Uh, definitely want to invite you to subscribe, rate, and review. That's uh, always going to help us out as we get a uh, branch out into the other podcast platforms. That's one of the things we want you to do. So please uh, make sure and subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite uh, podcast hosting site. And also during this time, share with your friends, families, and other colleagues uh, to uh, to help us uh, get the word out. You know, our our goal is to have some fun doing this with us, but uh, to get some information out uh, to you guys. But uh, and you can also reach us at our Twitter account. Um, and so follow us there and you can shoot us questions or direct message there at. You want our individuals or the one for the podcast? The one for the podcast. The one for the, see, he does this to me and doesn't tell me. Um, it's at perfect chaos seven. So follow us so there the number on seven. Twitter uh, with the number seven, perfect chaos seven. Uh, somebody else didn't, uh, I think to ask us before uh, they took the perfect chaos there right. at the beginning. So, hey guys, as always, it's a, a, another fun week and uh, we look forward to coming back uh, to you uh, next week uh, in which we uh, are going into the uh, realm of the power of failure. I was going to bring some of that up today, but saw that as the uh, podcast title for next week and which it's actually uh, educational for a student to get that F on an exam and what it does and, and how we can use that. So as always, guys, we will see you next week.